we'll shift to today's scripture reading. And I'll be reading from Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 13, and then continuing from verses 18 to 24. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the guile of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. That is the word of God. Thanks, Daniel. If you're just joining us, we're back in the book of Acts. Like I explained, I gave a whole introduction of why we're back in the book of Acts. Um, for next two more years, we're going to be coming back to the book of Acts. We started this series last year. And this year, we're going to be in chapters uh, 8 to 12. So the whole summer, we're going to be in the book of Acts. And we're going to have different, not only myself, but other elders and pastors teach as well. And one of the reasons why we wanted to walk through the book of Acts uh, was to be able to consider and process what it means for you and I to be church together. Post-pandemic, uh, a lot has changed, the way we think about church, the way we, uh, are stay, we are staying connected to church, and we thought it'd be wonderful to return to uh, the original uh, archive of the first 30 years of church to help us kind of walk through what, what it means for you and I to be a church. And hanging out after service today is, is part of uh, being a church, fellowship, and spending time together. So service is not only this part of the time, but service happens after as well. Uh, but really, there is nothing quite like the book of Acts. I, I've said this last week. We have four gospel accounts by four different authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we only have one sequel to these gospel stories. Many scholars argue that part of the reason is because what happened in the first 30 years of the church is near impossible to really write about. The explosive growth, the miracles, the supernatural move of God, the healing, the disruptive nature of the gospel. Luke was perhaps the only person daring enough to take on this daunting task of attempting to tell the story. Luke was a trained physician, right? This is a sequel to his gospel of Luke. He's a trained physician, a dear friend of Paul, someone who was on the ground, who's done his research through this book of Acts. 
He gives us a rare window to first 30 years of church's existence. So today we pick up the story from Acts chapter 8. We were in verses 1 to 4, and today we're in from 4 to we're going to go all the way to 24. So in, in Acts ch- chapter 8, verses 9, um, before we get there, let me just give us a quick context. Remember, in the opening pages of the book, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before Jesus ascended to be with the Father, he had told his disciples, he had given them this blueprint of how the gospel was going to spread from Jerusalem onto different regions. Right? It'd be taken to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And with the arrival of the promised spirit in Acts chapter 2, the church was not only birthed, but it, ex- it, ex- it experienced an amazing growth in the first couple years. Right out of the gate, Peter preaches and thousands of people come to faith. Yet, in the early stage of the church, the gospel remained within the city of Jerusalem, right? According to Jesus, the gospel was to go out from Jerusalem onto different regions, but really gospel remained largely in the city of Jerusalem. And it did not spread onto different regions like Jesus talked about in Acts 1 until chapter 7, following the tragic death of a young leader named Stephen, who was a, one of the first deacons of the church. And an intense persecution against the church began to arise. We are introduced to a man named Saul, who we know as Paul. He's introduced to the scene, and he persecutes the church. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, he persecutes the church. And following this intense persecution against the church, the gospel begins to spread quickly unto other regions. We talked about this last week. Not because a mission plan is approved and executed. Not because people wanted to go plant new churches or people have asked in other regions to come and preach the gospel. But because ordinary believers like you and I took the opportunity given to them to preach the gospel wherever they're sent. Right? We, we, we assume persecution or opposition against the gospel will hinder the movement, but that's not true. What we see throughout the book of Acts is every time persecution is intensified, the gospel moves greater. It fuels the movement of the gospel, and that's true of today. That's true of the history of church. And starting verse 4, Luke writes about the first account. Interestingly, the first place where the gospel reaches is the region of Samaria. We know about Samaria through the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, right? The racial, theological, cultural border that stood between the Jews and the Samaritans for generations is no match for the move, move of God. Verses 4 to 8, Philip begins, lands in Samaria and begins to preach the gospel. And many come to know Jesus. Samaritans' response. They were, for years and years, for generations, they were so stubborn about their place of worship. They're so stubborn about their own idea of theology. But Philip shows up with the message of the gospel and the people respond positively. Philip's ministry in the land of Samaria signals a new order. I think Luke is intentional about telling us the story of Philip, putting this story ahead of any other story. It, it really signals a new order, a world reclaimed by God, made in flesh. That he would actually send Philip to a land of Samaria to really remind the Jews that he is God of not just the Jews, but also Samaritans. 
And verse 7 tells us, unclean spirits cried out in loud voices, came out of many who had, who had them. Many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Right? The signs that announce the new order exposes the captivity created by the old order. And the people who are living in darkness indeed sees the light in our passage. And through the gospel, those who are sick are healed. Those who are under the demonic influence are set free. And amongst the crowd, there's a contrasting story. So the, the Samaritans, the majority of the people, they respond in faith and they say, we want to be baptized, both man and woman, young and old. But amongst the crowd, we are told of a, a man named Simon, an interesting character. And verse 9, apparently this man Simon, this is not Peter, one of the disciples, this is just different, another Simon from Samaria, was a man of great influence amongst the people of Samaria. And it's because he had practiced magic. Remember, Jews were strictly prohibited from any involvement in magical practices. Deuteronomy 18, God repeatedly talks about not to participate in any form of sorcery or magic. And in their context, any form of magic or sorcery was directly associated with the form of idolatry. Idolatry with the demonic. So really, the story, Simon stands front and center of the old order of things. And soon, the old order of things will be met with the power of the gospel. That's really the story. In fact, verse 9, the Greek phrase, practicing magic, it originates, this, word, this Greek word originates from the Persians because they practiced magic. And it came to be used of anyone possessing supernatural knowledge or anyone who was a deceiver or, or seducer. And many scholars believe Simon's influence was not just, it wasn't like he was doing card tricks or he was just amazing people with these tricks, but it was heavily spiritual. The language that Luke uses to describe Simon's relationship with the people, he's a, a sort of a spiritual guru. Verse 10 to 11, Luke tells us this man Simon was extremely influential. Many in the region were gripped by his idolatrous claim to be, some, in some sense, a divine man. And verse 10, the Greek phrase, people gave their attention, doesn't simply mean people were listening, listening to him. It implies that he had disciples. He had following. He was a spiritual guru for the people. And it's into this demonic spiritual climate Philip enters with the message of freedom message of new order message of new kingdom a message of a king that is different from all other kings a king who would gladly lay down his life who gladly lay down his life for his people and of course verses 12 to 13 as the Samaritans heard Philip's preaching Luke tells us they were cut to their hearts and they, they gladly received the gospel and asked to be baptized. And to everyone's surprise, the, the story gets even more interesting. Simon, their spiritual guru, he raises and he's like, I want to be baptized too. I want to receive the gospel too. So verses 13 tells us Simon was not only mesmerized by the signs and, and, and the power that he's encountered from Philip's ministry, 
For a while, right, as soon as he, Simon gave himself to receive the gospel and, and the scriptures that he believed, from that moment, it says he attached himself to Philip. He became sort of a disciple of Philip. And for a while, Simon's response to the gospel seems very genuine. That is until we get to verse 18, the meat of the story. So verses 14 to 18, Jerusalem church hears of this amazing revival in the land of Samaritans. And they don't know how to handle it, but they're like, okay, we'll send Peter and John. And they're going to go pray for these people. So Peter and John joins Philip in the land of Samaria. Now the scene is Peter and John and Philip and the Samaritans. And Peter and John, in verse 18, places their hands on the people. And, 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 and Simon is watching Peter and John place their hands on people and pray for them. And the Holy Spirit rests on anyone and everyone that they've put their hands on. And Simon is amazed by this power. He's, again, mesmerized by what Peter and John is able to do. So he offers Peter and John in the passage money. He says, let me pay you. I'll pay you for that power. I want that kind of power. If I could do that, I'll pay you. And this is where the story gets really interesting, right? You see, for Simon, as we follow Simon's journey, as Luke describes Simon's journey, for Simon, the gospel was not a transformative faith. He believed, but it was not a transformative faith. It was transactional. Let me explain what that means. You see, for Simon, the gospel was not very different from practicing magic. He saw it as another tool to get what he really wanted deep down inside. Simon loved the fact that he was powerful. He loved the fact that he was called a great man. He loved being influential. He loved that he had people following him. He had disciples. Practicing magic gave him power and influence over others. So he's hoping, right, that this gospel, whatever this is, that Peter and John have come to give to his people, he's hoping that this gospel can do the same thing for him, maybe even in a better way that he would be able to get more power, more influence, more money, perhaps. So Peter's just, you know, Peter, Peter's personality is upfront, he's honest. He's, he's honest, and he responds by saying, "May in verse 21, may your silver perish with you. Not very soft. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. In verse 23, Peter says, you got to repent, Simon. Your heart is not in the right place. For I see you are in a gall of bitterness, in bond of iniquity. We've got to circle the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I'm like, what does that mean? You see, the gar, the gar of bitterness, we find in verse 23, is an Old Testament imagery from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verse 18. An image of a tree or a root of a tree producing bitter poison. But it was an imagery used to describe Israel's sin. Right? What was, what's the Israel's sin? When you boil down the Old Testament, what is God's problem with Israel? It's the sin of idolatry, going after other gods instead of committing themselves to Yahweh. 
right? So this imagery of roots with poison is really imagery of sin of idolatry. And Peter is saying the root of your faith has been poisoned by your desire for power. In not so many words, what Peter is saying, when I interpret what Peter is saying here, what Peter is saying is you don't really want God. What you want is his power. What you want is his influence. What you want is you fill in the blank, but what you don't want is God. And that very desire, whatever that may be, I think it's power, I think it's influence, but whatever that may be, if you dive deeper, maybe it's something else, has poisoned Simon's faith. Scripture is very clear. He had, he believed. Yet he did not have eternal life. He did not have transformative faith. It was transactional. And, and that desire for power, influence, or something else has shackled him into pattern of sin, bond of iniquity, continual pattern of sinning because of that very desire. So again, for Simon, sorcery or practicing magic was a great tool. It gave him great influence, power. It probably made him a lot of money. Yet when Philip arrived with a new message, a new magic, that's how at least Simon saw it. When, when Philip arrived, he gladly received. And, and he was even baptized. Why? Because for him, the gospel was more powerful form of magic. A far more effective tool to give him what he truly wants. Whether that's power, influence, or fame, or money. And, and, and friends, as I was reading this text, I was reminded in my years of ministry, I think I'm, I'm in year 15, I've met many Simons that have come to not only this church, but the church I was serving at. Many Simons in the church, they come to hear the gospel and they're glad for it. They're excited, they jump in, they get involved, they serve, they give, they go on missions, they become members of, of the church. Yet I've noticed somewhere along their journey, when they come to this reality or realization that Jesus will not comply to their vision of life, their vision of what is good, what they want, what they need, they have no problem moving on to a new belief, a new worldview, a new religious system. Last week I mentioned how living in Seoul is like this Japanese TV show. I was talking about this Japanese TV show. There's this old Japanese TV show. It's um, hidden cameras. And, you know, they do a bunch of funny things, and it's supposed to be comical. But in one show, there are a group of just, just random people. They don't know they're on camera. They're just walking in this tiny street. And then all of a sudden they plan, staged, 50 people in this tiny street run the other way, right? Run towards the people. And 9 out of 10 people, they just run. They don't even look at what's chasing the crowd. They just run. And I, I said, living soul is sort of like that Japanese TV show. We don't know why we are always exhausted. We don't know why we, our schedule is always filled or we're going to places. But we do it because, again, we don't want to fall behind. Part of... I think this is because we live in a culture that idolizes success. 
And in this climate, right, when we add our faith into this climate of always chasing success or falling in love with the idea of success, it's very easy to practice our faith or to, to relate to God as, as a mere exchange. Again, not transformative faith, but it's transactional faith. And externally, transformational, transformative faith and transactional faith, externally, they, they look similar. They both serve, both pray, both give, both go on missions. But transactional faith, at the heart of it, is about, is about imposing our will or our way of life, not only on the world, but on God. Our prayer is spent, right? Our prayer time is spent focusing on what we want. You think about your prayer life. Think about what we want. Think about what we need. Then simply learning to rest in God's presence. Many of us are happy to pray, happy to obey, happy to give, happy to follow God, happy to serve. As long as God's going to keep his end of the bargain. And there is this temptation. In modern day Christianity, there's this temptation to turn Jesus into some type of genie in a lamp. We'll happily subscribe to Christianity, subscribe to Jesus as long as we can rub the lamp and he will make our wishes come true. You see, in a transactional faith, Jesus is not our Lord. I don't want to commentate on the, the story of Aladdin, but the relationship with Aladdin and Genie, think about that. Genie is not his master. Aladdin is. And the relationship, the whole movie is about what? Aladdin wanting freedom. Or I'm sorry, not Aladdin. Genie wanting freedom. And Aladdin saying, no, I want my wishes. A lot of, if we're not careful, a lot of our faith, even though we may not say it, we may not even believe it. That's how we practice our faith. Yet the problem of this type of transactional faith, as we see in the story of Simon, is that God will not conform to our notion of how he should behave, or who he should bless, or how or what he should do to reward us for honoring our end of the deal. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not who Scripture reveals. That's the God we want to believe. That's the God that we wish existed. But the truth is, if we read the Scripture, that's not the God the Scripture reveals. If you don't believe me, let me introduce you to the story of Job. What a intense story a quick summary a book of Job in some kind of cosmic bet between God and Satan God allows Satan to afflict his faithful servant Job right destroying his wealth his family and his health while Job sits in the dust lamenting his life three of his closest friends this is the most this is the saddest part of the story three of his closest friends attempt to comfort him by offering him some type of explanation as why this all has happened. And they become increasingly convinced that Job must have sinned and that he needs to repent. He needs to figure out what he did wrong. For in their 
transactional view of the world, God always punishes the sinful and rewards the righteous. No exception allowed. And Job remains confused and perplexed because he is confident that he did not sin against God. And he cannot understand why God would punish him and not take his life. And after 35 chapters of questions and attempted explanation, if you make it to like chapter 38, good job. No one makes it. Everyone's like, okay, I give up. God finally breaks his silence. And this is, this is, and I read Job and I'm just like, what is this ending, right? I, I still don't get it. And this is how God responds to Job's endless questions about why. Job 38, 2-4, this is NLT. God says, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Job, brace yourself like a man because I, the Lord, have some questions for you. And you better answer them. And he begins to question, where were you when I lay the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. And for the next two chapters, 38, 39, 40, God continues with a spectacular account of his power and wisdom and all form of pointed questions at Job. Where were you? Where were you? Where were you? And at the end of that conversation, the book comes to a close. Job simply responds, saying in Job chapter 40, verses 5 to 6, he says, I am nothing. How could I ever find answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. And when we read Stories of Job. And we truly believe that's scripture. That's God revealing himself. There's no way we can go from book of Job to say transactional faith. Friends, our attempt to fit God into our transactional mold will not work. God will not fit into our boxes or our lamps or whatever you want to fit him into. It simply will not work because Scripture reveals again and again, he is not our genie. He is our Lord. So what's the remedy? Okay, you went on and on and there's no solution. No, there is a solution. Friends, the only remedy to this predicament of Simon, because I think there is Simon in all of us, is that we need to continue to anchor ourselves in the truth of the gospel. That's, that's really the only remedy that will save us from making the mistake that Simon makes in our passage. Friends, this is the gospel that all-powerful God humbled himself. That powerful God that speaks to Job and says, where were you when I laid the foundation of this earth? Do you know? He humbled himself to come into our world as one of us. I mean, that, that ought to blow our mind. The reality of incarnation, God becoming a man like you and I. And the reality of the life that he lived and the death he chose to die for you, for me, because of us, because of me. 
And then he took on that cross for our sin, our failure, so that we can begin to truly live. And the nature of the gift, think about this, the, 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 the nature of Jesus' gift. Jesus' death wasn't transactional in nature. Right? The gospel speaks of a completely different exchange. He did not take on the cross for a greater power or influence. No. The scripture says he did that for us. We were his prize. We were his reward. The joy that was set before him, as the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus' commitment to the cross, is about us. We are his joy. Cross is not joyful, but we are his joy. We are his reward. It wasn't like Jesus was like, I'm going to use this to get something more. I'm going to use this to get something better. No, we are what he had wanted. And it is the only thing, right, as we anchor our faith in that truth again and again, that is the only thing that will continue to loosen our own gulls of bitterness, our idolatrous heart. I want to pray, but before I pray, I want to give you guys a moment to consider Simon's story and maybe consider how you have related your, yourself to the Lord in, in this season. Perhaps you hear the story of Job and you're like, man, that's me. I feel like a Job over this season. I feel like I could relate to Job. Perhaps you hear the story of Simon and you're like, I could never be like that. No. I think the, story, I think the lesson of the Simon story is that we are like that. That's who we are. We are fickle in our hearts and our commitment. Yet, despite our fickleness, the story, the lesson is that Jesus came and Jesus chose to, again, give away his life. I'm going to give you guys a moment to pray, and then I'll, I'll pray and lead us into communion. Let's take a few moments to pray together. Father, we thank you for this reminder through the story of Simon. Lord, we confess, oftentimes, we don't know our own hearts. Oftentimes, we sing these grand songs about how we love you and how we want to be committed to you and how it's about you. And we pray these words. And say, you are, you are our Lord, you are our master. Yet God, we know we cannot hide from you. We know you see through, through us. You know our, our, our own hearts better than our own hearts. And our hearts lie to us. So I pray for, for, for those of us even when we hear the gospel, it doesn't move us. We've gotten so used to the gospel. We've gotten so used to comfortable. The gospel has become 
and old news for us. Holy Spirit, would you revive us? Would you renew our hearts? Father, we pray against apathy. We pray against the evil one. We pray against deception in this place. To look at men like Simon and say, we can never be like Simon. Lord, we are Simons. Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the death, the power, the, the, the amazing reality of the gospel. Lord, would you open us? Would you open our eyes? Would you open our hearts? Would you help us to see and hear the gospel fresh today? And Father, save us from making our faith transactional. Whatever that is, whatever we want, whatever is hidden, however we grew up, remind us. We need you, Jesus. We need you. We need you. We need you. Just in we pray. Amen.